Hello, this is Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEC, and this is another episode of Healthcare Insights Podcast. And I have the pleasure to introduce my guest today, Dr. Gregory Kuchera, who's a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine for the, in the section of Hematology and Oncology at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, or I should say Wake Forest School of Medicine. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the things that he's doing is in his teaching and in research and uh, welcome Greg all right glad to be here well growing up I remember watching uh, Miss America and they'd always ask them you know what your goals are in life and you know it's either world peace or curing cancer and you're actually out there trying to cure or find treatments for cancer so tell, tell me a little bit about how you got there um, you know what when was the or what was your path to get where you are today? Sure. Well, it's taken a long time, as you can imagine. Um, and we're not quite there yet. Uh, it began, I guess you could say, when I was in graduate school here at Wake Forest School of Medicine uh, in the biochemistry department. And I got my Ph.D. Uh, back in 1987. And at the time, I was working with uh, phospholipases and seeing how phospholipases were regulated. And... In, in particular within the diet. And then I went on and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Vermont, and there we were looking at the um, how phospholipases were regulated within the platelet. And so we, we did a number of experiments up there, and basically we were looking at G-protein coupled receptors and, um, and looking at the regulation of uh, phospholipases, phospholipase C and phospholipase A2. And then um, I came back to Wake Forest in 1990 and joined the Department of Internal Medicine. And uh, at the time, Dr. Bob Capizzi was here. He was a leukemia doctor, and he was interested in novel therapeutics for the treatment of leukemia. And one of the observations that he had when uh, he was treating these leukemia patients with a drug known as Eris-C uh, is that they got uh, 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 mental uh, uh, side effects that were taking place. And uh, what we figured out was that using these high doses of ARIC, uh they were effectively uh, um, altering the, the, the biosynthesis of the lipids that coat the neurons. And so that's why they were getting these uh, toxic side effects, uh, neuronal side effects. And so from there, we, I was interested in nucleoside analogs and how we could better um, target the tumor cells uh, with these nucleoside analogs. And so um, my father at the time, Louis Cachera, who was in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology, uh, he was working on antiviral treatments. And again, they were using nucleoside analogs like AZT. Um, and they were altering the, the pharmacology and the pharmacokinetics of those drugs by putting a lipid moiety on the, the nucleoside analog. So we decided, well, let's try and do that with some of these uh, anti-cancer drugs. And so that's where we began to alter the, the, the structure of the nucleoside analog and, and alter the pharmacology and the pharmacokinetics. From there, uh, we, we started a company, Kachera Pharmaceutical Company, uh, and tried to uh, um, promote those or push those drugs further down the pipeline. Uh, that ultimately uh, failed, and so we brought the technology back to the school. And about, I guess it was five or seven years ago, um, we had just been doing in vitro experiments. So we were in the laboratory, we were testing these drugs, modifying them to see how they were working in cell culture. And it wasn't until uh, a physician named Tim Pardee, a physician scientist named Tim Pardee, came to Wake Forest uh, in the section of hematology and oncology, and he had a mouse model for leukemia, uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia and acute myelogenous leukemia, AML. And so I said, Tim, try some of this drug in your mouse model and see how it works. And lo and behold, it worked pretty well. Uh, we were giving the drug by intraperitoneal injection at first, and it wasn't really that much better than the parent drug that we were using at the time or the, the standard care therapies at the time. It wasn't until we started giving the drug orally that we began to see effects that were much greater than the drugs that uh, the, the parent drugs. And so from there, 
We did a number of different uh, in, vi uh, in vivo experiments with this mouse model. And so an, a company, uh, Spherix, uh, Spherix Incorporated, uh, recently licensed the technology from Wake Forest again. And we're on, on our way to try and get a phase one clinical trial going with this in acute leukemias. Great. I didn't understand half of what you said, but um, <laughs> sounds great. Uh, you mentioned a word I did understand, failure. Um, how important, I mean, d describe maybe some of the failures you've had in research and how important that is for learning about getting closer to success. Sure. Um, failures happen all the time. Experiments fail all the time. And, and you're just, it's kind of like playing golf. You know, you, you hit that one good shot and it makes you want to come back and play golf again. So, and just like in the laboratory, you get um, several failed experiments and then you figure out ways to work around those failures. And hopefully you'll get a nice shot and you'll get where you can publish that that bit of work, so I would I would equate it to being very similar to playing golf, you know. <laughs> well, that that's a good analogy. I mean, I, I think the important message is that failure should discourage anybody from anything they do. But in science, it's it's that much more important to, to recognize what do, what works and what doesn't. And, the, and build on that process. Yeah, and, and technologies change over the years, too. Um, when we were originally uh, working with phospholipases, we were isolating these enzymes from rat livers and doing column chromatography and, and things like that. And now we were, we were using radioisotopes. Now you've got mass spectrometers, you've got flow cytometers, and, and all kinds of uh, new technologies to help promote the science and make, make the science better. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, with all the technologies, and then I read in your CV um, a, a study that is maybe current or pending with uh, with muscadine grapes. Um, so it's it's funny how technology can't uh, surpass what nature provides. So can you tell a little bit more about about that that research you're doing? Well, that that particular project, and you might want to invite uh, Ann Talent and and um, and her uh, group over sometime to talk more about that. But they're looking at the anti-cancer properties of natural products, and there are many natural products out there. Um, taxanes, for example, um, um, paclitaxel came from the Pacific yew tree. Uh, so there are a number of drugs that are derived from natural products out there. And a lot of times we'll identify what those natural products are, the drugs, and then we can modify them and hopefully make them better. Mm -hmm. Well, a common thread of a lot of my podcasts are uh, I mentioned how food is medicine um, and, and how we've gotten away with our processed foods and our you know busy lifestyles and everything. Um, and I saw another uh, another study that mentioned omega threes in in breast cancer and prostate cancer. I guess sure. it was. So, you know, w w what uh, uh, what mechanisms do you look for when you when you're looking researching those types of things? <laughs> it's interesting you bring up the the uh, omega three fatty acids in breast cancer. That was a study that I inherited. Iris Edwards wrote the original grant uh, on that and that got funded, and then Iris. Um, uh, retired, and uh, Julia Lawrence picked up the project. She was also in hematology and oncology. And then Julia Lawrence left the institution, and so I fell in line to, to carry the, uh, the clinical trial forward. And Ed Levine helped us out uh, with, with the actual clinical trial. But the idea behind that was to give breast cancer patients um, high doses of polyunsaturated fatty acids that are found in fish oil to try and lessen the uh, inflammatory response in the breast cancer. So we would treat the patients prior to their surgery. We would um, uh, take a sample of their blood. We would give them the fish oil. And then during the surgery, we would, uh, uh, the patients consented to allowing us to have some of their tumor in normal tissue. And we also took another blood sample. And from those, then we looked at the uh, the, the fatty acids that were uh, in, in those tumor tissues and the normal tissues and in the blood. And we also looked at the eicosanoid products. And the eicosanoid products regulate the inflammation uh, within the, uh, the tumor. And what we were hoping to do was to reduce that, uh, anti, that inflammatory response. And so we're now analyzing the data. Now we just finished the clinical trial 
uh, back, uh, well, it's been several months now, but uh, it's taken a long time to do the mass spec and the fatty acid analysis. So hopefully we'll be able to respond, uh, give you an idea in a few months or so how that actually worked and, and if it was beneficial to take the fish oil. So do you get these cues from nutritional research and, and, and apply them or translate them into approaches well, for... Well, nutrition is, is certainly a, a, a big part of health. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, processed foods, high salt, high fat, uh, that, that's our Western diet here. The more Mediterranean diet where you're eating polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, less processed food, more fish, uh, less red meat. Um, those are definitely uh, healthy lifestyles. But what we're talking, and, and those are more along the lines of, of chemo prevention, preventing the cancer before it's there. Um, whereas once you get the, the cancer, um, you know, dietary supplements um, and, and diet are, are important as well, but you may need other um, pharmaceutical interventions to um, protect from the cancer. So take a step back in history, I guess, and, and look at um, cancer history and, you know, the the... I don't know if it's conspiracy theory or or just the skeptics that say, well, we didn't really have cancer a uh, hundred years ago or two hundred years, or is it was it just because we didn't know what it was, or is it our environments changed so much that these things are happening to our bodies? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, clearly environment plays a role, diet plays a role, your genetics plays a role, and all of these things, you know, fit together. Smoking, uh, uh, you know, alcohol consumption, uh, everybody's trying to tie just one thing to a, a tumor diagnosis. It's not just one thing, I don't believe. I think there are many things involved. It could be the luck of your genes um, that you inherit. Uh, you know, it, it could be that, that you've been smoking cigarettes for 85 years and you've got no tumor involvement at all. You know, so I don't think we understand well enough what promotes these uh, tumor growths. But clearly, I think there are things identified in the environment that we need to pay particular attention to. Um, and, and, you know, regulate those things to a point that we minimize the, the, the chances of getting cancer. So, so tell me about the classes you teach. I mean, you're a professor, so I'm assuming you have some classroom time. What, what do you, what do you? Yeah, so I, I uh, spend about forty percent of my effort uh, in the classroom teaching graduate uh, courses as well as medical school courses. My primary um, uh, responsibility is to be the course director for a course known as Metabolism and Defense in the first year of medical school. Um, it's a uh, basically comes after their anatomy block and what we talk about in this metabolism and defense course is we tie together a bunch of different disciplines so we begin with the the basics in biochemistry and it's more of a survey course so we're not going to teach students all about everything there is to know about biochemistry hopefully they've come in with a good background but we're trying to get everybody to the same level so that they can understand going further down the road what uh, what the body is doing how it's responding to drugs uh, you know different things like that so we begin with biochemistry and molecular biology. Uh, we move on then to uh, immunology and then to um, bacteriology and microbiology. Uh, and then we finish up with virology. And that's, that course goes from uh, the beginning of November to about the end of January. Um, and so we're just building, we're, we're building a foundation so that these students can then go on to an organ-based um, uh, curriculums where they can look at the circulatory system, the pulmonary system, the renal system, and understand the basic mechanisms for how those different systems work. So I spend a lot of time doing that uh, as the course director and teaching the biochemistry uh, there. I've got a block of teaching coming up for the PA students in biochemistry. So again, it's a very short um, I think I meet with the students probably a total of eight hours uh, and, and go over all of the biochemistry that we think is necessary for them to, to progress in their career. And How long have you been teaching in the classroom? So I guess you could say I, I began in 1990 and um, 
at the time, John Tolmey was the, uh, the, the dean of um, medical education, and um, I guess it was 1994-95. The school had embarked upon two different curricula. We had what we called the, the um, traditional curriculum, which was the standard lecture-based uh, curriculum, and then we had what we called the parallel curriculum. The parallel curriculum was a self-taught uh, curriculum. Uh, the students would uh, meet in small groups, uh, and, and it, it had much less lecture time in that uh, uh, in that setting. And um, so I became involved with that parallel curriculum, teaching biochemistry correlates with Pete Smith, who was in biochemistry. And, and Constant Stanton, who was in uh, pathology, and we would we would go over some of these what we thought were very important concepts regarding biochemistry that these parallel students needed uh, to make sure that they were covering all of their bases. We also had small groups, so we would pair up with a clinician and a basic scientist with about six or eight uh, students, and we would have uh, simulated cases that we would take a look at, and we would look at what are the biochemistry uh, uh, implications of this particular case, what are the pharmacology implications, are there any anatomy implications. So we were basically taking a, a case and, and looking at the basic science related to that case, and that's how we uh, taught those students. So that was back in the mid-90s or so, uh, and I did uh, uh, case-based learning for uh, quite a number of years. And then when uh, Pete Smith retired uh, four or five years ago, um, I was asked to teach the biochemistry block and to take over the, the course directorship for the metabolism and defense course. So it's been about five years for that. Okay. How has is, how is the teaching approach um, evolved since then? You mentioned the transition to case-based or problem-based or inquiry-based learning. Is that now the, the main way that that's the course where it does, is delivered? Yeah, so we've got, uh, we've got a lot of uh, a lecture uh, that goes with this case-based material, and what we've tried to do is match up these cases with what they're learning in their didactic uh, uh, lecture uh, material. So, uh, for example, we might be talking about... Um, metabolism, and we will look at a, a patient that has G6PD deficiency. So that's a deficiency in a particular enzyme. So it's important to know enzyme structure. Uh, it's important to know about reactive oxygen species, why these particular uh, uh, patients have anemia, and it's due to the fact that they can't protect themselves from the reactive oxygen species. And those reactive oxygen species then uh, obliterate the red blood cells, and so they end up with anemia. So that's an example of when we're teaching biochemistry, we would be looking at a patient with a deficiency in a particular enzyme. There are cases in, um, in immunology, for example, uh, where we are looking at uh, a family, for example, that that uh, gets the flu. So we're combining not only um, uh, immunology, but virology. And, and there are a number of issues that come up with that. Uh, vaccinations, you know, should the grandfather, should the parents, should the child get vaccinated? Uh, you know, different things like that. So we try and pair up these case bases uh, sessions with the didactic material that they're learning at the time. Now, is some of the lecture stuff, is, has that been flipped and delivered online these days and more, more Well, all of our lectures are recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, so what that allows the students to do is listen to the lecture at their leisure. Um, mm -hmm. Very, I'm going to say maybe 50-50 student of, of the pop, student population come to class mm -hmm. uh, on a regular basis. Um, you know, it, Learning styles are different these days. Uh, used to be everybody. That was the only way you could consume uh, education was in, in a lecture-based material. But now we have flipped classrooms. We have games that we play. Uh, Jeopardy, for example, would be a, a game that um, is played in the classroom. We, uh, you know, have um, teach, pair, share, uh, different sort of modalities uh, to not only to, to stimulate the, the, uh, the learner's, um, you know, memory and capacity to learn, 
but there's just so much to learn. And learning from one another uh, in the classroom setting is, is just another modality and, and a way that some students prefer. Some, some students only prefer lecture. Others prefer case-based, small group uh, settings. So we try and mix it up as best we can. How has the assessment changed over that period of time? So assessments for my course are still uh, um, multiple choice questions. And the reason we do those is because the um, uh, national board licensing exams are all multiple choice. So we have to prepare the students for those multiple choice um, uh, questions. We also uh, can assess the students in their small group setting. So how, how do they interact with um, uh, their peers, uh, you know, how well prepared they are, what, what's their knowledge base, um, things like that. So we have, you know, student faculty evaluations that, that take place on a one on one basis. Um, you, you mentioned the complexity of some of the cases in, in the relationship of biochemistry, which, which, which uh, kind of uh, brought to mind how much more informed consumers of healthcare think they are when they go look at WebMD, but you never get the depth that you just described of, of those processes, which, which fascinates me And that, you know, I think listeners out there who, who aren't in medical school or, or haven't had that background uh, in, in biochemistry should note that it's important that we have this level of education so that we have this really grounded knowledge of body, bodily systems and, and, and how even down to the cellular level things work because that's really hard to portray in a WebMD page for people. Absolutely. Uh, you know, everybody has a computer. I'm, I'm not going to say everybody, but computers are highly ubiquitous now. You've got a, a, a smartphone in your pocket where you can Google anything you want, basically, and, and try and uh, figure out what it is. But you have to be very, and this is what we teach the students, you have to be very critical of the resources that you're utilizing. Um, uh, you know, anybody can can just access uh, a number of, of public sites that are out there, but how are those sites vetted? How are they created? Are there experts who are actually putting this material together? Or is it, you know, a, a, a business entity with a, a monetary um, driver that's actually publishing this information on the web? So you have to be very critical of your sources. And that's the other thing we try and teach the students now is to... Uh, very critically vet their uh, their sources, particularly on the web. Know what a good journal source is going to be. How to find those uh, obscure. Um, passages in, in, a, in a journal article. But uh, it's, it's very critical that they learn how to find the appropriate material and be able to then digest that material and relay it to their patients. Yeah, I think that's a message for everyone is, is to check your sources um, before you copy a link and paste it and, and verify the validity of those. And, and which brings me to the question, in science, in the basic sciences and research, um, with the ability for conflicts of interest to influence and create agendas, um, uh, what is there, have there been any trends you've seen in, in in published research in the literature for you know that well I guess the level of scrutiny something must pass before it gets published because there's I get just because my name was mentioned in in one study for anticoagulation. Uh, uh, continuing education thing we did at Northwest AHEC, um, I get offers to publish in, in all kinds of journals. It's like I could submit a You're poem <laughs> and I might get published. So I, I just wonder what, what kinds of things that you see or in in the milieu of your world. Um, you yeah, know. we try and, and minimize conflict of interest, uh, particularly in research. Uh, we have to fill out conflict of interest um, um, disclosures uh, and and make make sure that uh, you know everything is above the table and, and people are aware of what's going on. But I was, I was 
we had a, a veterinarian over to the house the other day uh, to um, give our dog acupuncture. So our dog is, <laughs> is this ancient 13-year-old chocolate lab, and uh, he he likes his acupuncture, so, and it helps him out. But He's meditating right now. Exactly. <laughs> um, but what she was highlighting was how important, again, for animals is, is the diet that they're consuming. And a lot of these, you know, if you walk down the the aisle at PetSmart, you see just tons and tons of different dog foods. You've got lamb, you've got salmon, beef, you know, vegetarian. some have vegetarian, non-GMO, whatever. And and the point she was trying to make is that she has a hard time, um, you know, telling her, her clients what the best dog food is. And, and, her, and the reasoning is, is that these companies are sourcing their products to incorporate into the food from different sources. And so you don't know if the the literature that was published on this particular pet food came was paid for by the company that that's manufacturing it was it paid for by an independent uh, reviewer uh, what the things are so and, and things are changing so much so it, it's hard to make these recommendations and, and that's in the veterinary world uh, so but it, it's the same in, in human medicine as well you have to be very careful and now that they're allowing uh, uh, advertisements and commercials on uh, on television promoting these different drugs and what they do um, you know the physician needs to be cognizant of, of what is out there what the patient might be hearing in the media and and be able to give uh, a, 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 an expert opinion on the validity of using drug X over drug Y for example well, also it kind of leads down the path uh, I want to take for a second. Um, sometimes when I click on an article and, and then it mentions a study and I click on the study and I'm not from my EDU computer, I might be at home, and, and then I get it a block because it's under Elsevier or, or PubMed or one of the, the journal, I guess, uh, keepers. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that – something just doesn't feel right. Uh, about that to me in that, you know, a lot of these studies are grant funded from taxpayer money, and then we can't have access to them. Right. So there's a big push now to have free access journals, and uh, a number of them are. But like you mentioned, there are still many journals that, that the lay public just doesn't have access to. However, if you were to go to the medical school library or go to a, a university library, a lot of times you can get those articles. Or, uh, you know, I've never tried it from our public library here, but that's another potential resource. Uh, interlibrary loans are another source. So, um I agree. I think that's a big problem, especially in research projects that were funded by government entities. The public taxpayer should have a right to see that material. And a lot of times you can. I think it's getting rarer and rarer for those um, articles to not be available. Um, And most of the high impact uh, articles, I would say, are are available to to the general public. You just have to know where to look for it. And Takes a little bit of effort. Yeah, and and your librarians are great resources, and that's the other thing we try and tell our our medical students is uh, utilize the librarians. They know how to find material like you wouldn't believe. Well, that hits close to home because my mother was a librarian and and I work closely with the digital librarians, we call them, in the AHEC system. I think all the AHECs have some aspect of of a librarian resource and and I think they're underutilized because people think they can just look at Wikipedia and find a source and and as we know that you know crowdsourced knowledge bases aren't the most accurate. Yeah, you type something into Google and you got... 30 million uh, articles that pop up and somebody decided which one's coming in first. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be the most relevant oftentimes, but the librarian can help you pare down your 30 million hits on a particular query down to a manageable uh, query size that then you can go through by hand to look out and see what's more appropriate or less appropriate for what you're searching. Yeah, I think that should be incorporated in in the school curriculum and in the public schools and, and maybe high school level is 
correct uh, search yeah. methodologies and, 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 and how to do just that. just don't take the best uh, article or, or piece of information that best fits your idea. You have to look at all angles of it. And, and I, I think that's where people get into a lot of difficulty is that they have an idea in mind about what they want the answer to be and they don't look at all of the, the relevant information. Yeah, I think that that's a big part of our political divide we have now is everyone's got their confirmation bias and they only pick the sources that validates that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we, we need to definitely scrutinize sources and, and challenge our own ideas right. sometimes. Right, right. Um, what what have you seen uh, trends since you've been teaching in the the student themselves? I mean, have you seen changes? I know I, I know technology has grown uh, with with today's students, um, with Generation Z, I guess we're calling it now. But uh, what have you seen from just being in the trenches? Yeah, so I, I think we get a very diverse student population. So we'll have students that come right out of uh, undergraduate school. We've got students that have been in the workforce for a number of years and decide to make a change. Uh, well, uh, uh, several years ago, we had uh, an Episcopalian priest who was, uh, you know, out, you know, with her congregation and so forth, and decided to come back to medical school and has done very well uh, with that. But again, that, that was. She was a much older student. So I, th I think coming out of undergraduate school, um, the students uh, are embarking upon a, a journey that is a lifelong learning experience. And it's less of a just learn it, reg regurgitate it on a test and forget it. Now they're into a, a, a career choice that you know, they have to maintain this level of um, self-taught knowledge and, and, and seeking uh, not only new information, but the appropriate information. So I think there are differences in the, the younger students versus the older students uh, in terms of, uh, you know, their um, ability to prioritize uh, their lifestyle and, and so forth like that. But not only uh, just different ages of, of individuals, but some are uh, kinetic learners, some are visual learners. And so that's why we try to incorporate a number of different teaching modalities uh, within the medical school so that we can hit all of those. Um, and, you know, one person's uh, 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 trick or, or crutch to help them learn something won't work for somebody else. There we have, uh, uh, you know, online um, sort of uh, comic modules that, you know, tie together storylines with particular catchphrase words uh, to try and help people remember things. Some people love that. Some people don't like that. So it's all about finding your niche for what works well for your learning style, I think. What, what role do you think, uh, well, I should, let me rephrase that. Have you uh, seen anything in your experience of teaching um, of the tools that we provide the students um, that may have been before they were been proven in other words have we failed with certain tools that we've provided students uh have we failed i don't know if we've we've failed but we sometimes have to modify things i think um one example was uh, was the sketchy um, micro that, that the students utilize. Some of the students utilize some of those uh, things are very easy to learn, but there there are you know pitfalls within that. Uh, let's see, you know the good old fashioned uh, three by five. Uh, index card and write down uh, information on those. Not only are you learning by, you know, uh, uh, analyzing material, you're writing it down and then you're reading it again. You can use those, uh, you know, when you're out walking uh, in Renola Gardens, for example. I think that's a great way for uh, learning material. And uh, my a daughter who graduated from vet school, that's how she was able to uh, learn all of this massive amount of material was by these three by five index cards. And so I bring that idea back to my students uh, a lot when they're, if they're having difficulties to use that. Another old modality is just a whiteboard. Have a whiteboard and use that to draw up your concept. You know, it's one thing to to read about something and have an idea in your mind, but to be able to draw it on a whiteboard and, and explain it uh, also helps you to remember things like that. So 
I don't I don't think we've failed in our modalities. I think we just have to keep modifying them to uh, best fit an, an individual learner. Um, yeah, well, I, th- I, I just see sometimes I see everyone's trying to be on the cutting edge to attract the students that they want. And we've I've you know since I've been here twelve years, we've gone through. From the original laptops to to um, the PDAs, those lasted about a year or two, and and, and you know from the Palm Pilots on up to the, the little pocket PCs, and then those got thrown out. Now we've got the iPads and iPhones and and all that. But it seems like the modalities that are tried and true are that because they work so well, like the three by five index card. That's exactly right. I mean, you drop your PDA or crack the screen, then you're, you're toast on that, but you can't, you can drop your cards and you just reshuffle them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I agree. New technology comes down the pike a lot. Uh, you know, I've, I've been here and saw that progression of things as well. Uh, but the reality is, is that, the electronic medical record is here to stay. Uh, the students need to know how to enter stuff in. They use those uh, computers every day. Uh, some people like taking notes still, so they still write in a notebook. Others just type on a keyboard. You know, is that considered active learning or not? You know, I I, I disagree somewhat with that phrase, but uh, you know, the more senses that you can use when you're trying to learn something, the the more you're the easier you're going to learn something. But um, well, one thing that hasn't really changed all that much is the scientific method. I mean, has, absolutely. I mean, you've got your hypothesis generating ideas, uh, and then you test those hypotheses, and and you know that that scientific method is is you know. And I think that's a method for learning too. I mean, anything that we do, we question. You know, why is this happening? You know, the observation, and make our own hypothesis, and then somehow test it to right. see if it, it validates. I think instead of just taking, letting emotions guide us to come up with the answer, we actually look at things critically, mm-hmm. and measure and, and perform experiments, and that can you know it can be abstract as well as as in the lab. Yeah, but I, I think another point to this is. We're not just filling these students with knowledge, but we're also uh, uh, shaping their career. How are they going to become a, a good physician? You know, are they a good diagnostician? Can they figure out what the problem is? How do they interact with the family? How do they interact with the patient? You know, it's it's a, a total package that we're trying to instill upon these medical students here. We're not just trying to make them be as smart as they can be and then send them off into the world we're we're trying to create a doctor that's going to be a a physician that takes care of their patients understands their patients and and helps them through their life and be lifelong learners that's you know one of the things we do at northwest ahec is have you know continuing medical education that provides updates and timely information about clinical practices and trends in in the field so i think it is a it's a, it's a career-long learning uh, and the experience. Quicker, the quicker the students realize that, the better their life will be, I think. Well, you mentioned some career changes, like the, the minister who, who, who came to med school. Have you seen the opposite, like a med student go into basic sciences because they were excited about you being excited about research? Well, and- absolutely. Uh, my daughter is a good example of that. She got her DVM uh, degree, and now she's going into basic science. So, But I think in that uh, sort of realm, the individual wants to become an academic person. Uh, um, scientist or mm-hmm. uh, one one that wants to go in to teach mm-hmm. uh, whereas some people come to medical school with the sole idea of going out and practicing medicine taking mm-hmm. care of individuals you know be it uh, you know in a rural area or in a uh, urban setting you know some people just want that side of medicine and don't want to go into the research side mm-hmm. um, but it takes all kinds of individuals I think for that yeah. Okay. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I know you're very, you're an outdoor enthusiast and you ride your bike. Um, you commute to work on your bike and you have a camp affiliation that you can talk about. Um, but what I was going to say, environmentally, um, are you concerned or how concerned are you, I should say, about this notion of biodiversity loss and, and, and the 
you know, knowing that you do research on natural substances to look for cures that may have already been there for thousands of years, and, and you know, and we may lose some of those that we never know. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think there was a report that that just recently came out that said how many species we're losing. I think the UN put that out, but it, it's staggering to to know that those species aren't going to be here any longer. Um, and you're right, you know, there are these natural products out there that may or may not have been identified. Uh, adriamycin is, is a compound that came from bacteria that uh, we use in, in the clinic all the time now. So there are antibiotics that are out there uh, that, that come from natural sources. But the, the key is, is to not deplete those natural resources or to identify ways of synthesizing them if that's possible uh, rather than deplete the, the, um, the natural resource. But I think, and that boils down to, you know, we need to take care of our environment so that we aren't losing these species. You know, there are a lot of species in the, in the oceans that, that could provide potential cures. And our oceans are heating up and those species are disappearing at a rapid rate. So uh, I agree, you know, it, it's, we have to take care of our environment. Yeah. Um, what are you, I guess, what, what keeps you up at night? Okay. Well, you can ask my wife. She says nothing keeps me <laughs> up at night. But, uh, you know, I, I think um, some of the harder things in science is, is funding research and keeping the momentum going. Um, that's been a difficult challenge for me and, and for others uh, is, is to maintain that level of funding uh, for particular projects. And that funding uh, waxes and wanes depending upon, um, you know, what's hot. Uh, you know, CRISPR is a, is a big hot technology now. Uh, um, uh, you know, genomics is, is a big thing uh, now. But, you know, when, when I was in graduate school, we were interested in how fats were metabolized. And so we were looking at basic enzymes and in, in, in lipid metabolism. So things change um, periodically, and, and research, uh, for better, of better or worse, has to change with that, with those trends uh, in terms of funding. So you mentioned CRISPR. Uh, I'm fascinated by that. I don't know a lot about the particulars, but. Um, uh, if if that succeeds to like the potential that I've read that could be, um, would that just render all other research irrelevant? I mean, it seems like we you could know, just edit our genes out of any problem. The same story can be said about cancer. So you find a cure for cancer, then you're not going to have cancer any longer. That's that's not going to be the case. And I think, you know, the CRISPR technology has its place for certain diseases, and muscular dystrophy is a, is a good example of where CRISPR uh, could um, make a big impact on those individuals. So um, there are, are certain um, instances where that technology would definitely be beneficial, uh, but just like with these um, immunomodulatory drugs that are out there now for uh, treating cancer, they work for some individuals and they don't work for others, and we don't understand why uh, that is. So I don't think there's going to be a point in time where we are going to say that one technology is going to take care of, of all the maladies out there. I see. Um, you mentioned funding. Uh, so it seems like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't with with where you take your funding from. I mean, there are those who would argue it's not the federal government's job to 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 fund science. Um, and then others would say, well, it's it's not influenced by corporate factors. And then when you take private money or corporate money, then, oh, you know, you're biased and that kind of thing. How do you how do you balance that? So I, I think that the the government the government has uh, a particular responsibility to fund the basic research because that's ultimately where all of our ideas are coming from. Um, when you get into more specific uh, uh, instances where you've got a specific product in mind, where and it, it takes a lot of money to get a drug from the bench to the to uh, the patient to the bedside, and um, you know that money has to come from somewhere and. You know, I don't think it's solely the government's responsibility to make sure that these drugs get from the laboratory to the individual. Um, private foundations are very important uh, for that. Uh, 
but also, um, you know, um, uh, grateful patients, too, are, are a source of funding um, for particular projects. So I think you have to look at all of the, the levels of where a particular product is in its life cycle and, and look at where that potential funding could come from. A lot of times it may, when you're getting into those later stages, you may need venture capital to, to help promote that drug, whereas the, the, the government shouldn't be funding those sorts of things. Um, I ask you what keeps you up at night. What gives you the most hope for, for the future? Hmm, I think the young students that are coming up, uh, you know, they, they have all the, the bright ideas. I think the, the old guys like me, just sitting in front of a computer we we may be able to help with some things but i think it takes somebody with you know a, a very novel idea to to get around a problem and so i that's my hope is is the young students and i look at these these medical students coming through and the graduate students that i've taught um they they all go on and do magnificent things and sometimes we we joke we say well you know, it doesn't matter what we teach them, they're going to figure it out anyway, and they're going to go and be much better than, than we ultimately were. So uh, I think it's the young students that are coming through that, that gives me the most hope. They're not all cynical and jaded like, like well, we are. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just that idea that they can make a difference mm-hmm. and, and they can still, that they're, they still have that drive for making a difference. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a sign of progress that those who come after us can do more and have new ideas and better ideas because we've created what we've created, but we realize that it's time for new, new ideas to come and new energy. And, and they've been given a lot of resources that were created by the generations before them. So, so we want that progress and that's good that I hear that repeatedly with my guests is like you know the new students the the eagerness they have to learn and and also the the big problems that they want to help tackle and and the concern they have for the the global environment too and I think that um, you know people like I don't know if you know Amy Greeson she's a a pharmacist but she goes out and does uh, travels to faraway places and look for bush medicine Mm -hmm. and, and to apply that back in the lab and things like that and the more we use let's say hydrocarbons and keep heating up our planet um you know, we, we're going to lose some of that ability to find those things or to rediscover them. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's good to hear that you, you're, you have a lot of hope in, in the, the, new, yeah. the new learners. And another thing that I, I try and instill upon the students is, is you know, who were the founding fathers? Who, who came up with the original idea of, let's say, electron transport or, you know, um, ATP synthase or these different things, these, these old biochemists that you know came up with these ideas and and the the technologies that they had they had to figure out a way for doing this research but realizing that things have moved forward based on what others have done in the past and to realize who did those things and take a more historical uh, approach to to knowing our, our uh, more historical approach as to why you're learning something and how you're going to be able to apply it later. Yeah, I mean, it's all foundational, I think, and, and uh, building on what's, again, what's come before you. And, and, and uh, you know, it's amazing what we've discovered in the last hundred years. Absolutely. And I think just the rate of discoveries and technology going, I mean, if the robots don't come for us before we figured out we may very well cure well, you're, cancer. You're right. And, they're, yeah. they're talking about artificial intelligence now as uh, applying that uh, into cancer research and to, to other things. And uh, I was with a group of scientists recently, and we were talking about management of big data sets and how to take all of this massive amount of data that we are collecting now and make sense of it all that's uh i think that's where we're really going to make some progress is to be able to look at all these data points and put them into a a, an understandable um realm because our brains just can't do that we need something far more superior to make correlations of, of things but then again you need that human 
contact with it to say, is this really right? Or, you know, are we headed in the right direction? Yeah, you got to know the dots before you can connect them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing. I mean, you know, just because we can do something, should we do something? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, those are those are some of the ethical dilemmas that we'll have in the next decade, I think, of, of how we create. And, and do we do it first or do we create a uh, system of rules that we abide by and then there's some bad actor who's not going to abide by them and create, you know, autonomous killing machines and stuff like that. Right. So, yeah. I, you know, we all are different and we all have different ideals of what's right and wrong. Um, we can make laws and we can, you know, have uh, um, ethical structures. And I think the important thing is that people appreciate those different ideas and different cultures and understand those ideas, where they're coming from with those ideas, and uh, not just fly off the handle at something that one person perceives as not the best way for doing something. There's there's a reason that they did that, and is is the reason culturally based? Is it, uh, you know, factually based? Why, why are they doing that? And, you know understanding and, and relating to different people, uh, different cultures is important. Um, describe your role. I, I, I noticed on your CV at Glance, you uh, served on the IRB, uh, Institutional Review Board. Um, can you just explain the role of that and any pros and cons that are there? Sure. So the Institutional Review Board takes a look at all of the clinical trials that uh, happen at the, at the medical center. And all medical schools have uh, institutional review boards. There are central IRBs as well. Uh, our particular setup at Wake Forest is unique in that we have eight different IRB boards. So um, they meet uh, twice. There, there's an IRB meeting at least twice a week uh, throughout the month. So our studies are uh, analyzed, looked at uh, very rapidly here at Wake Forest. And um, the role... There are a couple of things with being on an IRB board. You get to see the breadth of the research that's going on at the institution. Um, uh, but not only that, we're, we're looking out for the safety of the patients that are un- going into these clinical trials. Are they fully informed and aware of what's going to happen to them in these clinical trials? And they're not being coerced to go into these clinical trials. We want to uh, make sure that the the, the clinical trials are, um, uh, cre- are um, set up in such a way that they are going to be able to answer a question, um, although that's less of our responsibility. We just want to make sure that the safety of the individuals and the, the informed consent is, is present there. But uh, it's a very important um, process that needs to take place. I think it helps to um, maintain the legitimacy of the science in an institution, uh, knowing that the science is is being done uh, well, it's being done correctly, and it's not going to harm the individual. Yeah, I think a lot of ethics at play there as well, um, both with animals and human subjects. Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you came on today. This helps me connect some of the dots between the clinical side. You know, I've had a lot of clinicians come in and talk, and, and we re- we often forget about the basic science that that occurs behind the scenes um, in medicine, and 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 like you said, from the research lab to the to, to the patient's bedside, I, I think is is helps connect the dots to see how important that is. So I appreciate you coming on today. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs>